This morning is going to be a little bit different in that I'm going to tackle what is a very broad topic, um, way beyond the scope of one sermon. Of course, I think many statements are way beyond the scope of one sermon. They tend to become multiple sermons very quickly, but I am warning this one won't just due to scheduling. But I am tackling this morning what I do think is quite a broad topic, Um, And so I won't be able to answer every specific and particular that would require additional comment and further filling in some of the blanks. And um, so I may prompt questions um, uh, that I'm not going to provide an immediate answer to. Um, But I do think at the same time, the same stroke, I I trust this will be helpful to you, even in the handling of it as broadly as we may handle this morning. Beyond what we're tackling this morning, there will be the next three weeks of sermons uh, will be Pastor Dan. He'll be handling the next three weeks, and so we look forward to that time there as we make our move from uh, kind of gathering our, our, our um, I don't know what we're doing. Maybe we're gathering our, our energy, our mental uh, ability to then jump into what will certainly be quite a haul, I believe, as we venture into the Gospel of Luke is where we'll be going next And for those of you who have noticed uh, in prior announcement that Luke is 24 chapters long with some very long narratives, you're probably wondering if we're going to open up with a reading of public scripture. We might be here for three or four hours at that rate if we were to open Luke with a particular, what we like to do each time is one setting, continually read through whatever that is that we're going to begin to unpack. Um, We're working on that. The short answer is probably not. The long answer is more complicated. So we're working on that. But that's kind of where the ship is steering for the next few weeks together as a church family as we prepare for the Gospel of Luke. This morning's topic that I thought I would like to speak on, again, not because I can really get to each and every piece of it, but because I do feel that I have interacted with many of you and you have interacted with me over the course of at least the last year, I would say, Um, more than that, but particularly on my mind now, is our interactions over the course of a year on questions of what should I do next, where should I be next, what should I do, what would God, you think, require of me, and um, in other words, what is the will of God for my life? There's many of us in different places for different reasons and different ages and different careers and different spots in life and different developments in life where we all kind of ask that question. Most often it's a repetitive question. Rarely does a believer just like answer that question, settle in and never look to the left or to the right. It it simply is life is dynamic. And so often prompts us as believers to ask the question, what is God's will for my life. Now, as I say, to ta- tap to tackle the topic of the will of God is obviously a very broad brush, and uh, there, there's heavy nuance that is involved. But I do want to, nonetheless, offer what I can and be as helpful as possible on a challenging topic for each of us, a reoccurringly challenging topic for all of us, and that is, what is God's will for my life? I'll start by introducing it simply this way, almost daily, and you're well aware I'm not saying anything striking here, but by way of introduction, you're aware that we experience, that is you and I, all human beings, experience some measure of change each and every day. 
That is, we often experience change sourced in things, and I was jotting it down, just kind of briefly coming to my head. How, how does Adam um, experience change every day? Well, the list is endless. We could speak, um, you know, as you're getting older on a number of topics, those uh, might get dangerous fast. So we'll stick to the more broad topics, and that is simply sourced in things like products and services, right? I mean, you're experiencing that, that, that that's what's going on right now, particularly in the commercial season. Or no, I wait, that's Advent season, no. Uh, uh, those two things being the same. That, that, that is, you're experiencing products and services constantly. They're always changing. They're always up in the ante. They're always providing more. There's always all new additional mail-ins. The, the, you're constantly being chased and challenged with product and service challenges and changes. Social media options. You know, every day you log on, simply set up your computer in the morning, maybe you follow Twitter, and you're constantly being asked, do you like this or no? And you're like, no, just let me do what I want. Do you like this option? We're thinking about doing that. No, just no, 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 finally at my account. There, there's constant, constant changing with social media options, and then quite simply, you can step out and just think the weather. Um, we've had a, a great run here. We should be very thankful for our fall here in Pittsburgh. It's really been a great run but the weather, I will warn you, is changing. And that is so all things, again, create this sense for us to recognize. We recognize from when we're very small, uh, very little, until we're getting older and so forth, that life is never static and stable. It is always changing in its dynamic and its developments. So nothing remains the same. Everything is always changing. We're always on the move. Now, sometimes this is an exciting frontierism, right? Hey, we're on the cusp of something new. We're excited. You get the adrenaline rush. You're you're looking forward to what's next each and every day, maybe in small things or in more significant things. Either way, there's constant decisions being made. You're asked to always make a decision. You're in the food line. You're like, oh, man, there's all these items. You go to a restaurant. You're like, what do I want? Are you ready to order? I'm not sure. And there's constant decisions to be made, decision after decision after decision. This constant dynamic of life, even though it might be exciting, often, and I would think more often than not, now, again, this is tempered by your constitution, by, by your personality, your hard wiring, that which was given you of your parents um, uh, via your parents by the Lord. You, you have this wiring. And, and so each one will experience uh, this kind of stimulus at a different pace in a different way, and you'll process it differently. But most often, it tends, no matter what your constitution is, to create some measure of frustration and stress, wondering if you're making the right decisions. So I know I'm making regular decisions, decision, decision, decision. But the question is, and my frustration abounds, and my stress rises, or my blood pressure goes up, wondering this, am I making the right decisions? Uh, We went out to dinner last night, uh, Adrian and I, and again, you, you commit to something on the menu you're less than thrilled about, and you're just wondering until it gets there if you're going to like it, because you're out to eat, and you don't want to waste an out-to-eat opportunity. You know, if you've ever been there, you're like, oh, man, we should not have got this. Maybe we could reset. No, we're in the middle of a meal. You know, you have that, that like, we're doing something. I don't want to waste it. Did I make the right decision? Oh, no. I wonder if I should have ordered it without the olives. I'm not sure. Again, so real light levels of stress, but it's a microcosm of how we tend to handle and maneuver through constant decision-making. It, it creates some sense of insecurity regarding the right decision being made because we fear its consequences, particularly um, as we consider as believers 
It's not just raw decisions in a vacuum that we're making. We really are considering what would God have me to do. That's a secondary respect that, that kind of can somewhat haunt the believer is the idea that you don't find comfort in thinking and asking the question, what would God have me to do? But somewhat more, it pushes us into a bit of concern, or or it creates added measures of worry. So we're already kind of frustrated with the moving parts, not sure which one to take out and to live with, not sure. And then adding to that moving, dynamic, challenging, yet exciting situation is not just what should I do that affects me, but what would God have me to do? That creates another level oftentimes within believers' lives. I think we all experience some measure of worry and concern over that. One author notes it this way, speaking particularly now as I'm making a move from decisions and moving parts to a believer's positioning, viewing those moving parts, considering it's not simply me that I am making a decision I care about, but I'm making a decision I feel that God would have me to make. That, that for the believer, tends to become the vexing issue. One author puts it in its conventional form this way. I found this rather helpful, and it'll kind of be a launching pad for us to consider what is the will of God. Quote, this author, quote, conventional understanding of God's will defines it. So you're with me now, right? So God's will, you've asked counselor, friend, pastors, uh, siblings, spouses, these questions if you're a believer. What is God's will? Okay, so conventionally, let's think about it just for a moment. Quote, conventional understanding of God's will defines it as a specific pathway we should follow into the future. God knows what this pathway is, and he has laid it out for us to follow. Our responsibility in the matter is to discover this pathway. Maybe you're here right now on the cusp of, of this situation. Let's say this is, this is kind of a, a mountain. You're, you're here, you're the person here, and there's five or six different paths leading you down from here. And so here you are choosing between the six chutes, the Palenko options. I could go this way or this way or this way or this way. I'm hoping to make it to the 5,000 spot. That, that, that's, that's what I'm going for. So, so now I need to, as the believer in this situation, discover which one leads me to the 5,000. It's, it's that idea of discovery, I think, in, in, his, in his comment, that creates the anxiety. I, I'm not necessarily fearful of doing but I am fearful that I might fail in my discovery of what I should be doing. Do you see the burden that is God's will has now been squarely placed on my back? It's the issue of discovery. Because then the question becomes, how do I then discover? Because I feel that God has a plan, but between his plan and me is the discovery. And I need to do the discovery so that I can do then faithfully his plan or his will for me. So he has one. I believe it. Discovery is in the middle of it. 
He goes on just for a moment further. We must discover which of the many pathways we could follow is the one we should follow. The one God has certainly planned for us. Then he puts into this conditional language. If, maybe you think this, and we've all been under this burden. If and when we make the right choice, we will receive his favor. And we will then fulfill our divine destiny and succeed in life. So I'm, I'm on the Palenko's edge. If I discover, then I'll receive divine favor that will lead me the rest of the way down. But it's an if. So it goes a little bit further. If we choose rightly, we will experience his blessing and achieve success and happiness in our lives. If we choose wrongly, we may lose our way altogether, miss God's will for our lives, remain lost forever in an incomprehensible maze. Now, this comes in language more like you've possibly heard it a time or two, be in the center of God's will. You know, so, so it's, it's, it's broad, and you can be in the left of it or the right of it, or you can be where you really want to be, and that's the center of it. So, so, so now it's a proximity issue. So it's like, so, so how do I get a few degrees to the left? How do I get a few degrees to the right? How do I even know if I'm on the left? How do I know if I'm on the right? Well, how did your day go? Pretty crappy. You're in the left. You need to, by what means then do I get to the center? Well, that's tricky. I'm not sure. Quit doing what you were doing because you're way over on the left. So, so it's vexing. It, 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 because the, the burden of discovery is where blessing will be found, but how then do I discover this mystical maze known as the will of God? So, I hope to be helpful because, as I said, I can't be completely clear on all of its possibilities and its offshoots, but I can rough structure it to where I do think it will be helpful biblically. So what I want to do is two things this morning, and they'll take more than two seconds, but they will be only two, kind of. That is, the first thing that I want to do together is define what we mean as believers when we say the will of God. So I, I want to define that so that we know what we're talking about when we say what is the will of God or, or what is God's will for my life. You know, well, what are we even talking about? So first, let's do that. What, 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 let's define what God's will is. Secondly, provide seven steps for obeying God's will in your life. So... It quickly went from two points to, I think that's eight, but the seven will go quickly. Um, so that is, so what is it that we're talking about? And then, and then if we can define it, then, then how do I obey it? Um, well, seven things that we can do. Um, and I'm not going to add it seven to make it even more confusing. You notice though, seven, I did note, seven is the number of biblical completion. You do realize that, right? I, I had six, and it was unbelievable. I grew into seven, so uh, amazingly. So, what is it, and then how do I obey it? So first, section one to our time together, let's define, let's ask the question, what is the will of God? And the answer to that is twofold. And this is where I want to spend a little bit of time. That is, the answer to that is twofold. 
Um, So what we're talking about when we describe from Scripture the one will of God, think of it kind of in terms of the one will of God. So so you have this this large circle, which you would then label in your mind the will of God. And and within that, as it's communicated to us as his creatures, so you you have creator, will, one big circle, will of God. Communicated to the creatures, you have two distinctive branches or two distinctive categories of that one and absolutely perfect and complete will. You have it communicated to the creatures throughout the text of Scripture, kind of in two distinct categories. Okay, so, so it's not that it's confused in and of itself, that God has a will, but then it's kind of back and forth and he's unsettled in it. It isn't that way as it's communicated to us. It is one complete will of God that is then communicated to the creatures in two distinct categories so that we can grasp what the will of God is without exhaustively knowing what it is because we're simply creatures and there's no way to understand and grasp exhaustively what his perfect plan is for all things. Let me explain it this way. In those two distinct categories of the one will of God, if you want to look at Deuteronomy 29, 29, if you're, if you're there, it's the verse card that we handed out for today because that's really kind of like the main thrust of what we're dealing with um, and our main text that we're kind of handling this concept of the will of God from. And the reason I cite Deuteronomy 29, 29 for you is because it's the clearest text in Holy Scripture that sets these two distinctive elements of the one complete comprehensive will of God. It sets them in order, in relationship, one to another, as the creature is to grasp them. So again, I draw your attention one last time to the idea of how we're about to read Deuteronomy 29, 29 in answering the question, what is the will of God? Well, the will of God is this large circle you can kind of think of in your mind if it's helpful. Think of it in this concept, the one unified, perfect, and complete will of God. And it's communicated then to me, the creature, at a level that I can grasp it when I read 66 canonical books about that one perfect and complete will of God to help me grasp his perfect plan. It's communicated to me in these kind of two distinctive categories that help me then grasp what I need to grasp and stop worrying about what I don't need to be worried about. The best text that arises for us in our reading, to find these wills of God being communicated side by side so closely and giving us direct information about it is Deuteronomy 29.29. Look there as I read the text uh, and we begin. Uh, quote, uh, verse 29.29, uh, uh, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now, there's two categories that come at us about this one perfect unified will of God, and there's these two subcategories in 29. You notice them right at the very beginning. He puts them into two distinct categories. Number one, the secret things. And then he gives us yet another category in our relationship to God, the revealed things. These are two distinct subsets or categories for our understanding about the one complete work of God in the world. He is working. Done deal. 
he is working. But then within that working, things about that working are revealed to us, and things about that working are not revealed to us. These are the two distinct categories. Consider the first one when we define the secret things of verse 29. The secret things, this is for you, believer Christian, this morning. This is for you. Take rest in this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. In defining the secret things, we would define them this way. The secret things are describing all that God has decreed for everything that exists. That remains secret and hidden from you because it's not your stewardship. It's not for you to then look into and peer into and decipher and discern, discover and then act upon. It won't be given you. It has not been given you. It is belonging and the stewardship rests solely with the Lord our God. They are those things which he has decreed for all things from the beginning of time and will come to pass in his summation of time. These things are decreed in his absolute goodness, joyfulness, mercifulness, sovereignty, and pleasure. These things we would call the secret things that Moses is describing here to you this morning in the will of God as you consider what is his will. It is committed to God, an unchangeable will that is absolute and perfect in its establishment and in its consummation. It is perfect and absolute. We call this will When we say this secret things, we call this God's will of decree. Quite straightforward, right? So you you have his, his, his will that is at work in time and space, and the secret things that belong beyond time and space, for not for our interpreting, are secret. They're they're secret to you, but not to God. They belong to him. They are not secret to him because he has ordained them. This is what we call the will of decree. I cite for you just briefly Ecclesiastes 3. You don't need to turn there. I just do so because we're fresh off the book of Ecclesiastes. So I know you recall what we said in chapter 3 so soon ago. I don't know how you say that. So in the recent past. Ecclesiastes 3.11, the preacher described this will and then he described the, the, the individual's response to it. And he said, these things are the hidden work of God from the beginning. And he adds, they cannot be found out. This is the word to the creature. The secret things, the things that are beyond your finding out are not up for grabs. Neither are they up for you to decipher, discover, and discern before you act in life, is I need to know the secret things. I need to be able to peer into life's mysteries and figure out every single thing that is moving before I can act. He's saying that is an exercise in futility. It cannot be found out. And it's not your stewardship or your call to begin unwinding them or on a quest for finding them. They belong with the Lord our God. For example, 
consider just kind of two small things that, that kind of are debated somewhat uh, among believers at times, uh, but we commit as we grasp that the will of God that is ordained cannot be found out, and we could apply that quite simply, that we do not know who God has elected. When we speak of the people of God who are effectually called through the gospel, as we preach the gospel, as we speak truth, as we share our faith, we do not know, oh, this person is who I'm supposed to share my faith with because I can tell God has elected them for salvation and grace. That's not how it works. The, the, the secret things, what God has organized through the person and work of Jesus Christ in gathering his sheep from every people, tribe, and nation is not up for us to discern and then act. That is his decree of which we are not stewards, but of his revealed will, we are proper stewards in the sharing of the gospel. Consider we do not know who God has elected Consider a small secondary observation about the things that are secret and yet belong solely with the Lord. Are our ordinary observations, I mean outside of our ordinary observations, we don't know what tomorrow holds. I mean, uh, we could cut it, I just throw it out for, as in we don't know what would happen tomorrow, but none of us ha- knows what happens each and every next second. Right? No, no, no one knows. So it's beyond our finding out, and it is not our stewardship to discern. It belongs with the Lord. Sure, we can recognize certain weather patterns. So, so we can turn on the news and be like, okay, you know, whatever. Wednesday, it's going to be, you know, dreary and 35. Okay, we can recognize those things, make those basic observations based on providential weather patterns that are well-established in laws within the earth. We can make those basic predictions, but we do not substantively know what really will happen by tonight, by tomorrow. We don't know who the Lord has elected unto his grace. These are the things that belong to the Lord. They are secret and they are not our stewardship. So if I was to summarize the first portion or the first distinct category within the one perfect and complete will of God, it is simply this. They are the things that God has not promised to reveal. They remain hidden and secret with him. So that's the first subsection, distinct category, things that are secret, that belong to the Lord. Now, so that's that category, and now you have this larger circle that yet has the other second distinct category in it, and that is what Moses offers us, as we said in verse 29, if you'll look there quickly, The secret things we have dealt with, those things of decree that are beyond our finding out, belong to the Lord our God. But there is yet another distinct category of the one will of the Lord our God that he has uh, for us to grasp, to learn. And that is, but the things that are revealed belong to us. So so we have a stewardship in the will of God. And this is where Christians think. So what is the will of God? Can I know? Can I find out? Moses is clear. There is something that belongs to us about the will of God and to our children. And we so can know it that we may do it. That is, there are things in in the will of God that are revealed things for us. So the second subcategory of the one will of God is the revealed things. 
If I could put a brief definition on the revealed things as we move forward to answering that question, what is the will of God for my life and how do I find it out? Well, consider the revealed things of Moses and what he is describing here are the things that God has revealed to us in Holy Scripture. Not just simply revealed them that we might read them, but he has revealed them that we might know and obey them. So much of our question about what is God's will for my life jettisons this very simple concept. We're off looking for the mystical. We're off looking for the sign. We're off looking for an arrow that is flashing. We're here considering our Palenko pathways and we really just want them all to be demolished and one to appear. That, that's what we're looking for because we're frozen in time. And then oftentimes we'll excuse that being frozen in time and irresponsibility of not acting on kind of a pious approach towards I'm waiting to discern God's will for my life. So not only does it kind of, is it unfit for us the way we pursue the will of God, but also as we pursue it, it excuses our irresponsibility of acting and allows us to remain stagnant and indecisive. Not only that, but it can create in that stagnant and indecisive mode some sense of pious posturing because we're searching for the mystical answer. But Moses says that's not the only way to discover God's will. He's actually revealed things to us and to our children forever. He's revealed them that we may do them. So here in this thought, join with me in this sense of that this is God's will in defining it of the revealed things is what we have called, traditionally we call God's will of command or we would call it God's will of precept. That is, he has this one complete will of God and he gives the will of decree, which is the secret things that are not your stewardship. And then he gives the will of command or precept, things that are required of you and are revealed to you. I say for you, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, I know you know that text. You, you've, you've read it and you've heard it and so on and so forth. In a summary of it, I would just speak of it this way. In 1 John 2, 15 through 17, the will of God in that text is being described in terms of not loving the world. That, that, that comes to you in the will of God for your life. So right now, you're already asking in the revealed will of God, what is God's will for my life? And he says, not to love the world. That's God's will for your life. Don't love the world, the things of the world, the things that are perishing. And then he goes on to describe the flesh, pride, lust. That's God's will for your life. In the things that are revealed to us that we are to know and obey. Oh, I, I'm, I, I'm waiting on the revealed will of God. I'm waiting for God's will for my life. Love not the world. Neither the things in it. There already, Moses says, there is a will of God for your life. There is a direct plan for your life. And it has been revealed to us that we might know it and obey it. And that is described already. I just give you one simple text as a small picture because of the familiarity of it. Where the will of God is described in terms of not loving the world. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. If you continue through 1 John, an extremely practical book, 
I trust you've read it or heard sermons on it and dealt with the book of 1 John. Extremely practical. You go beyond chapter 2 into chapter 3, and as John describes to the church, yet again, the will of God, that which is expressed to us and our children, to know and to do. John describes it in 1 John 3.23 this way. It is God's command, that is his will of precept, for us to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. Therein lies the will of God already revealed. To believe in Jesus Christ is his will for your life. To hate the world and the lust and pride and flesh, to hate the world and its idolatries. This is his will for your life. Again, these are the things that are revealed to us. Oftentimes, we're trying in verse 29 of Deuteronomy 29, we're trying to discern what we feel are the secret things that belong to us. But we grasp the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. That, quite simply, of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and hating the world is God's will for your life. Now, I want to get a little bit more specific. So you see the idea is the one will of God with these two distinct categories that speak most clearly to us as creatures of how we respond. Are you responsible for discovering the future before you act? The answer to that is no. How often we feel frozen in time because we do feel that I need to discern the future before I can act in order that I might not be on the left or on the right, but in the center of God's will. And so I'm caught up in the secret things that don't belong to me. And I forego most oftentimes the things that are revealed to me about God's will for my life every single day of providence. That I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is my Lord, and that I love not, by his grace, I love not the world, neither the things of the world, as my gravitational center. That is his will for me. But as I move a little bit more narrowly, putting it together, perhaps I would suggest this. The most important thing for us to grasp out of this very simple and broad handling, but I hope helpful, two wills of God, or the one will unified with two distinct parts, it is this. All of our moral obligations, please grasp this. All of our moral obligations for obedience is found here in the revealed will of God. That is a critical piece. Because oftentimes we're, we're more driven to discover the unknown And again, we might just assume the knowns. And that's hurtful. Because we tend to then act upon or act only when we feel it's right. Or we have a sense of surety. Based on what? Gut feeling? Based on some mystical subjective sense that we're doing the right thing? All of our moral obligations for obedience 
when we're talking, what is the will of God for my life that I might do it? Like this guy, that he might figure out, I guess he has figured out, he's walking right down the center. He's not in the woods, he's not in the woods on this side, and he's not in the woods on this side, because he has grasped that all of my moral obligations for obedience, that I might be in the center on the train tracks, is what's revealed to me in Holy Scripture that I might know it and obey it by faith. And then the Lord, sure as he has as a heavenly father, planned my every step, he will continue to lay the tracks in front of my feet. No, 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 guy, you need to discover where that railroad's headed. It belongs to the Lord. I just need to keep walking on them by responding by faith and obedience to what he has revealed to me. In other words, let me kind of finalize section one this way, and then I'm going to hit you with seven things that are going to unlock this mystery like you won't believe. Something like that. I want to be helpful with this text in order to grasp that we are not called to obey or to submit to subjective emotions, premonitions, gut feelings, or intuitions. Neither are we excused to be frozen in time in a pious facade because of our gut feelings, intuitions, premonitions, or emotions. When seeking to discern what God may or may not be calling us to do with our lives. In one quick statement, I want to encourage you not to confuse your feelings with the word of God. That tends to be where we go. Right, 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 right. Don't love the world. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and, and your neighbor. Like, I, I get all that. But what is his will? I feel like I should... Okay, moral obligation for obedience is soundly and squarely upon the things that have been revealed for us to know and our children to know forever. This type of, but, but, but I don't feel, but I, and I'm not saying that feelings have no part in it. I'm not saying that there isn't intuition involved. I'm not saying that you're not like, oh my gut, there's just something about my, my gut feelings about this. I'm not saying it has no, no, no pull, n- n- no response. I mean, you have these feelings for a reason. I mean, I, mean, I just can't pinpoint, neither can someone, some other counselor pinpoint what those feelings are or legitimize them to act on them. You might feel like doing a number of things I would recommend not doing. You know that to be true. So so again, we just need to keep them categorized where they belong. Their feelings, their gut intuitions, fine. Maybe some of you, that's a point of pride. My gut is never wrong. I knew that guy was going to do that. I could have told you. Okay, great. Your gut's better than all the rest of ours. It's still fallible. It's still fallible. It isn't the platform by which you need to then discern the best pathway down this mountain. 
in what we're discussing in the will of God for our lives. This type of mystical seeking is peering into God's stewardship, not entrusting our lives to Him, desiring to take it from Him, and then handle it ourselves. This is not your call, and it is not your stewardship. God has never encouraged or required us to unwind His secret things or His definite plan in our lives. With that said then, here comes what I hope to be seven helpful things. Remember, I said there's seven, so that does mean they're correct because they're complete, seven being the biblical number of completion. So I made seven to make sure you'll obey all of them. Um, but how can I hopefully direct, okay, so if it isn't peering into the mysterious, if it isn't being frozen in time and pretending like we're just waiting to discern the will of God by secret measure, if I know what God's will is for me at this moment to have my faith resting in Christ and to by faith act on that which is revealed in Scripture, if, if I'm there and I grasp, I don't need to look into the crystal ball or turn God into an eight ball. I, I, I don't need to know the, the pledge for like what's about to happen tomorrow based on all of the explicit and specific factors. I just need to act. How then can I act? That is, in living before the face of God and seeking to know and obey His will, here are seven steps for doing so. Number one, in this thorny topic of discovering, or rather we should just simply say obeying God's will for our lives, what is the very first thing that I can do? And that is the simple thing first, fear God. Number one, fear God. This fear of judgment, that all that I have done in life will be called into judgment, drives one from law unto gospel. When I say to you, fear God, I am pledging to you that the wrath was spent on Christ, that you might place your faith directly and squarely upon him, receive his righteousness and forgiveness for your sins. Number one, what is the most important thing I can do in obeying the will of God for my life? It is fear God by receiving Christ as your sole provision of refuge. That that is his will for you. That you believe. This is God's commandment, John says, that you believe in the Son, Jesus Christ. Most important thing I can do in my life for obeying God's will for me is fear God by placing my faith in Jesus Christ. Number two, the second thing. So, so when you're sitting and you're thinking this afternoon, what is God's will for me next year? What is his will for me in this career decision? Work this list just briefly and see how it goes. Number two, keep his commandments. This is simply gospel and law. Number two, keep his commandments. Do you remember where I got that quite straightforwardly just, uh, what, two weeks ago or last week in the read-through when the sum of the matter is stated, fear God and keep his commandments. That's what Moses, these are the revealed things to us that we might know them and do them. Fear God in the gospel and keep his commandments where the law is my guide. You remember as we speak of believers in the ongoing life lived before the face of God by his law, we recall that the law is a compass pointing me in the direction. So again, we're thinking, how do I know where to go? 
keep his commandments. Look to his law, having received his gospel. Look yet again unto the law as a compass, as a guide. We're not lost in space, floundering about. And if we are as believers, we're wrongly doing so. Keep his commandments. Number three, pray. James speaks of prayer a bit this way in uh, 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 multiple ways of saying, ask for wisdom, right? So, so number three is pray. And I cite for you James 1, 5. So fear God, keep his commandments, and be prayerful. James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, I don't know what God wants me to do with my life. I don't know what, who God wants me to marry. I don't know what God wants me to move. Ask for wisdom. Pray. Well, I know, I know, I know. But what do you think he wants me to do? Pray is what he wants you to do. No, I mean about moving. Pray is what he wants you to do. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And then attached to that call or command to pray is the promise. He gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. Who should I marry? Pray. Admit lack of wisdom. And as an indulgent father, he will give it without reproach. He's not sitting here saying, are you kidding me? There's five ways down. You cannot see which one has $5,000 at the end of the palinka. Are you joking me? I know I should have figured it out, Lord, but if you'd just be so gracious to me and you'd show me, I know I should have done better. I should have had greater wisdom. He doesn't give it after reproaching that you don't have it. He's asking you to come as an indulgent father to bestow it. If any man lacks it, let him ask. Pray. Number four, in obeying, not discovering, but obeying God's will for my life every day, both in small sections and in larger sections. What should I do to obey it? Not that I might discover it and then finally act as I peer into the future secret things. But what can I do that God has revealed to me? And that is seek godly counsel. Number four, in your time of transition that is upon you, seek godly counsel. Ask, listen, Speak, be clear, seek godly counsel. Proverbs 19.20, I cite for you, is this, quote, Listen to advice and accept instruction. You remember the picture of the book of Proverbs is the picture of a father to a son. What is that convention of wisdom but a teacher to his pupil? As he is instructing the young men, he is giving them proverbial wisdom of ways to discover what it is that God has revealed to us in life, that we might live it successfully. And what does he say to you that you might live successfully? He says, listen to advice and uh, accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Number four, seek godly counsel. Number five, how might I obey God's will for my life? Number five, we learn in Ecclesiastes 11 and in other places, and it is this, take risks. Take risks. Start going down the mountain. You do realize you'll die of starvation and hypothermia largely if you stay there. 
I mean, I don't know what your provisions are at the top. Maybe you came ready to live your life up there. I don't know. We're all finding our place at times between a rock and a hard place. Act. Take risk. Ecclesiastes 11 is this way about, again, you cannot eliminate risk in life. And many of us as believers think, if I can eliminate it and account for all the data, then I'll finally do something with my life. Then we, all the rest of us, are going to pass you by. Don't let that happen. Act. You cannot eliminate risk. Ecclesiastes 11, you can look there, verses 1 through 5 is the entire exposition there where he explains how to take risk. But I cite for you verse 6, in the morning sow your seed. That's to the guy on the cliff or, or on the mountainside. Hey, guy, sow your seed. Act. The other aspect of that is at evening withhold not your hand. You remember the word of harvest? Because remember, the one who will not act and risk it all is the one who says, it looks like a wind gust is coming tomorrow. Don't sow the seed. Meanwhile, the winter comes and the family starves. Because until he could discover, I was going to have 10 days without wind, I'm not sowing my seed. You don't know what the future holds. Sow your seed in the morning. Just do it. You don't know what's going to occur. Well, I'm not going to act until I do. Then you're going to die. Act. Sow your seed in the morning. And withhold not your hand. Oh, no, we don't know about the harvest. We don't know about what's coming. We don't know it might rain. Get the food out of the ground. Act. So it says, Ecclesiastes eleven six. in the morning sow your seed, and in the evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this path or this path or this path, as I work my way down. You don't know which path will prosper or whether multiple paths will be good. Why try to say, until I can look about 2,000 feet straight down, I just, I'm frozen. Because I might get down there and find trouble. True. Or you'll die standing here analyzing it. Sow your seed in the morning. Withhold not your hand in the evening. You do not know what will prosper, this path or that, whether both alike might be good. Number five was take risk. Number six, and how I might obey God's will for my life. How can I act in time in a sense of peace? And I say a sense of peace. Let me make this footnote. This is another aspect of the will of God that we need to grasp. God does pledge in the fruits of the Spirit, joy, peace, promise, um, uh, ongoing, and so on and so forth, right? And so we're thinking, I want peace about this decision. Great. That's a good thing. But recognize that peace in this age will always be a mixture of peace. Perfect peace awaits the fullness of the Lord's return. Again, if we say, I just don't have peace about this, that might be a good thing. But it might not. It's not infallible, your feelings of peace. It is mixed in this age, as is your joy. There's always a mixture in the age that is passing away. So six, remember God's promises and provisions. Number six is remember God's promises and provisions. Remember them. So that goes with number five. I put that little footnote in there that was maybe a bit distracting because I really wanted five and six to go together. So five, I'm going to push you back up, take risk. And six, in the taking risk call to mind God's promises of provision. Life is risky. Live it. 
and don't live it by faith as in a way without knowledge, but a faith that is informed on certain promises. It is risky. But God is not dynamic. God is stable. So too is his infallible word. What he promises and pledges, he also infallibly provides. As you risk, recall promise. Romans 8, 28, a text that you all know in remembering God's promises and his purpose for your life. Does he have a purpose? The answer is yes, of course. Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. He has a purpose for your life. And the good that is worked out in Romans 8, guess what type of good it is? A sanctifying goodness. So again, it might not turn out good. You might buy that house and it's a money pit. And you think, man, I'm in the left of God's will on this place. There is a sanctifying goodness where you're where the Lord has you. And what his will is for your life is he works out his purposes and bringing you closer into the image of Christ. Recall to mind his promises and provisions as you take risks. And number seven, the final one for this morning, and seven steps, the completion to our building of the pyramid of success. That is, how might I live in obeying God's will for my life? Number seven is astounding. And it is, get on with it. Get on with it. In other words, live your life ever relying upon the grace of God and the person, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Act in time. For He does have a perfect plan for your life. And praise the Lord. It's not only unto you for your good if you first discover it and then go do it. He is unfolding it every day of your life. Act. Trusting in His care and provisions. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give us wisdom. We're all facing so many different challenges and changes in our lives and burdens that we're bearing.